0: Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. As a preface, I had planned to preach on something else and had dutifully studied and researched and constructed my sermon. Had it all ready to go and driving back Virginia Beach yesterday from home the Lord said that's a fine sermon now I want you to put it aside for another time tomorrow I want you to preach on this saying Lord couldn't you have told me that on Monday And he said well then you wouldn't have written the other one so so the Lord in his infinite sense of humor And irony is having me do exactly what I don't like to do, which is just get up and preach without knowing exactly what I'm saying. I've made some notes, I'm not sure I can read them. So if I mumble from time to time, you would know I have no idea what I'm supposed to be saying here, so you won't know. Let's begin with a brief prayer that I certainly need. Lord, you're the master, we're the servant. Tell me what you want me to say and help us to hear what you want each of us to hear. And above all, Lord, may you be honored, your name lifted up and you glorified. And then everything will be just fine. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up in the church, a dutiful Presbyterian. My grandfather was a Presbyterian minister from Wales who was converted during the Great Welsh Revival. My father, after pursuing several different directions, was finally called into the ministry and also became a Presbyterian minister. And so we were raised in the Presbyterian church doing all those things that Presbyterians do, especially more liturgical Presbyterians, where every week we would confess that, that uh, we're sinners and, and there is no health in us. You may remember that prayer. And, and then receive the assurance of our pardon. We would, and we heard the gospel we just didn't know that's what it was, you know? And we sang the great hymns, and I grew up singing and singing in the choir. My father died when I was still fairly young, when I was seven, but my mother found that her, it was her faith in Christ that really gave her the strength as a young widow with three children to keep pushing on and to trust that God had everything under control and that He'd pay the bills and and that everything would... And He, and he did. He worked out things wonderfully. And we continued to, to grow up in the church and I sang in the church choir and I was active in youth group. And the interesting thing is our, the leaders of our youth group were... A circle it was actually they were all from one prayer meeting one home prayer meeting uh, that was part of the Charismatic renewal in the late 60s and early 70s and so they would come and at youth group they would share their stories with us how they came to know Jesus how God had answered remarkable you know had answered prayers in remarkable ways how so and so had been remarkably healed and they would share these neat stories the irony is I would listen to all these stories and it never occurred to me once that this was something that I should have well I mean that's really cool and then I was okay that was cool and I'd go home and that was it it never dawned on me and so at the age of 15 i could not have explained the gospel to you even though i had prayed prayed those prayers and heard that that pronouncement that through Jesus Christ you are forgiven I couldn't have explained it to you even though I went through communicants class you know at the age of 12 where we took the class and made the formal profession of faith by saying yes 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 and then we got confirmed and I became a voting church member but I didn't even know Jesus was coming back I mean, I knew nothing, though I'd heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it. I was hearing without understanding, and I did not recognize, I did not realize that there was anything more that I had not already experienced. That going through the motions that I went through was all there is. That's what makes you a Christian. That and being a pretty good person. That that was all there is. Now, we kind of expect that sort of thing hearing that from people that are coming out of the mainline denominational churches, especially liturgical churches that rely so much on those formal processes and so-called liberal mainline denominations. We expect to hear that, that, that people don't really know the gospel, that they haven't really encountered Christ We figure, well, they're not going to hear it, and they certainly, you know, your average uh, mainline denominational church does not have an invitation where you can come forward and give your life to Jesus. So, well, that we would expect that would be a pretty typical story. Certainly, you're not going to find that among evangelicals, are you? Or are you? Bart Ehrman, who is of all things a professor of, a distinguished, shall we say, professor of theology in Chapel Hill. Bart and I go way back. Bart grew up Baptist, fundamentalist Baptist. He walked the aisle as a teenager to give his life to Jesus. And he would have said he was born again. He went to Moody Bible Institute and followed that up by going to Wheaton College. And then he went to seminary. Fifteen years ago, Bart began to really struggle with the whole problem of evil in the world and suffering. And the only way he could avoid having to really come to to deal with these issues was just to conclude, well, I guess God doesn't really exist. Then that sort of solves everything. And he became what he calls an agnostic atheist. This is someone raised evangelical. Last, this past September, Josh Harris, well known for his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and uh, pastor at Covenant Life Church. Almost two, not quite two months ago, he announced that he and his wife were separating and that he was leaving the ministry and had renounced his Christian faith. I think about two weeks ago, Marty Simpson, guitarist and one of the lead singers for Hillsong Worship United Band, has come out publicly And said he's struggling with his faith and that he is gradually losing his faith. Now, everyone jumped on that and said, oh, he's renounced his Christian commitment. No, he hasn't, not yet. But he is struggling with it. And there are many, many Christians, especially young Christians, but there are many in the, well, let me say, many in the church who and especially those under their ministries who have buckled under their own doubts and have renounced and left their churches and we wonder what on earth is going on here how can that happen just a few days ago Uh, John Cooper, who is the lead singer and guitarist from the Christian band Skillet, wrote an op-ed article, and he's appeared in several interviews since then, trying to make sense of what's going on there. And he, he just asked some really pointed questions. You know, why do we make especially in evangelical circles, why do we make our worship leaders put them up on a pedestal to be such influencers in the church? They were hired because they could sing and play an instrument, not because of their deep spiritual insights and maturity. It's just a fact. They're hired like you would hire an entertainer. Why do we make them the models for our young people to emulate in the faith? And he even asked, "Well, and then why would we make anyone's faith dependent on the example of a 20-year-old?" Sorry to those who are young, but I just have to—we have to face up. There are certain things you only learn over time. I've said it before, you'll hear me say it again. It's a truism that good judgment, you know this, good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. I have found if I do not make my mistakes before coming to Christ, I'm going to make my mistakes after coming to Christ. But I have to make the mistakes to learn the lessons. Fortunately, the grace of God is broad enough to love me even with my mistakes. And and John Cooper said we really need to get back to the central heart of our faith. It's about Jesus, and it's about the Word of God as the truth. And that we need to base our faith on truth and not on feelings or impressions. And certainly not on others. But I think the real core problem, John doesn't put his finger on this, but to me the real core problem is simply this. You know, in the, those so-called liberal denominations, we have relied on the effectiveness of the nurturing process. You know, the, of Sunday school, then communicants classes when they're 12, 13, 14 years old, that formal profession of faith and maybe laying on of hands, but it's the process and then they're endued with church membership and now you're a Christian. And we say, oh, how ridiculous. Obviously, you can just go through the motions and say yes to all the questions and have no understanding of what you're saying or doing. True enough. So, in evangelical circles, we We're preaching the gospel too, and then we have an invitation, and we hope that people will come forward and give their lives to Jesus and then publicly profess their faith, and if they haven't been baptized, then they're baptized, and then we say, now you're a Christian. We just changed the process, but we're still relying on the effectiveness of the process itself. As many of you know, we've all seen people that walked the aisle as an emotional response, or maybe they were just made afraid enough of hell or whatever else, or maybe there's subtle well maybe not so not so subtle, but often subtle pressure from the parents or the friends or or They'll go forward because grandmama's sick and we don't know how much longer she'll be with us. You know what I'm talking about? There's all kinds of pressure, social pressure, that we put on ourselves and upon each other to make a religious commitment. But then we assume the commitment, that that one act of commitment, must be all there is. Much of my early life was spent in Palatka, Florida. If you didn't hear of it, join the other two and a half, or three and a half billion people in the world who don't know it either. It's a little, it's a little town, but it used to be a potato farming community in North Florida. And we had a youth revival sweep through there. And dozens of kids, maybe even more than 100, I don't know, but that that flocked forward during the invitation and then suddenly they were all carrying their Bibles in school and they were meeting for morning Bible studies or actually prayer meetings before school and, and they walked the aisle, they made their professions, many of them were baptized in the in the Big Baptist church downtown. Within six weeks, only a handful of them were still committed. Have you seen that as well? Only a handful out of perhaps a hundred that responded. We're still reading their Bible. We're still going to prayer meeting. We're still living it out. When I went to college, I went to a Baptist college with about 20 of my friends and co-graduates to begin studying theology to be preparing for the ministry. There were about 20 of them. I I was the only Presbyterian. One of my best friends was the only Methodist, and the whole rest of them, not to bash any one denomination, but let's just say they were all of one denomination. That's very prevalent in the South. (laughs) 20 years later, and, and we all went into the ministry. 20 years later, We're talking about 22, 23 young people. 20 years later, only five of us were still in the ministry. Only five. And one of those hadn't started out going into the ministry. He came to the ministry later. Of those 20-something, only four, actually, stayed in the ministry. And many of those had left the church. We're doing something wrong. Why? Because they all assumed that what they had thus far experienced was all there is. That's what they told me to do. That's what I did. Oh, I had some warm fuzzy feelings. Oh, you know, I, I wept a few tears. That must be authentic. That must be real. It was an emotional experience. And that must be all there is. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis. Genesis. Chapter 28. I'm going to look at a couple of, briefly, a couple of stories I'm sure you all know. This is about Jacob. This is about Jacob. And we'll start Genesis 28. If you're not sure where that is, you flip it open, flip your Bible open to the middle, turn left. And you go just about to where you can't go any farther. And then you back up. Genesis 28. We'll start at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba, went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed. There was a ladder or a stairway set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring." Know that I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. And Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God. Amen. Jacob grew up in a religious family. His grandfather had talked with God. His father had talked with God. They had received promises and covenants and calls upon their life from God. And so Jacob surely heard these stories. And he had heard all about this God of of his ancestors, the God of Abraham. He knew their commitment, but it was not his own. I mean, if we're honest, up until this moment... Jacob has been, well, a scoundrel. (laughs) Cheating his brother out of his inheritance at every opportunity. Doing everything he can to get the birthright, to get the blessing, everything for himself. Me, 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 mine, mine. And now he's on the run. Because it's catching up with him. And he goes and he's unsuspectingly, he's praying there in this valley. And in a dream, something happens. And he can only respond, how dreadful is this place? How dreadful is this place now there's really nothing that dreadful about his dream if he saw a pit of fire with flames leaping up and souls you know, lined up and marching we'd say oh that's a dreadful dream <clears throat> if he had uh, uh, if he had seen armies or a locusts or something coming over him he'd say you know we'd say that's a pretty dreadful dream he sees angels climbing up and down ladders. Oh. And God stands beside him, talks to him, and is making promises to him, promises. And he can only respond how dreadful is this place? How dreadful. Now, You may, your translation there may say, how awesome is this place. We understand awesome a little differently than that now. To us, awesome is really cool and good. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome in this passage does not mean cool. This is dreadful. It's awful. It's not awesome, it's awful. It's, uh, some translations would say, terrible in the sense of something that inspires terror. He is absolutely terrified. Why? Because he has seen in his dream God in his presence and his power and his glory. Now, glory in the Old Testament, I'll talk more about this maybe in the new year is not what we think of when we think of glory we imagine light the hebrew word from glory does not refer to light it refers to weight it's heavy it's heaviness it's weightiness we talk about things that are being really weighty or we might call it gravity The gravity of the situation. He's overcome with this sense of the gravity of God. And he finds God, this experience, dreadful, terror-inducing. We might say staggering. And God makes a promise to him, the same promise he made to Abraham. But now it's Jacob's promise. And this is now Jacob's God. And this is Jacob's encounter with God. And he makes this commitment to follow in the way of the Lord, but now it's not based on the faith of his fathers. It's not based on the experience or encounter of his fathers. It is now based upon his own meeting with the living God. Amen. And may I say, in that moment I'm fairly sure he discovered that what he had grown up with and thought he had was not all there is. If Bart Ehrman If Josh Harris, if Marty Sampson had ever had a true revelation, a real encounter with the living God like this, if they had had an encounter with the risen Jesus, they could never, ever simply turn away. Oh, we might get mad at God sometimes. Say, oh, I'm going to go off and I'm going to take my marbles and go somewhere else. We know how long that lasts because we discover wherever we think we're going, God's already there and saying, hmm, thought you could get away from me, huh? Oh, you're welcome to go over there. I'm waiting for you over there too, by the way. We never really get away from God, but we know it. We know it. Once you meet Him, once you encounter Him, you know it. If they had, they would know it. And so what they're doing is admitting, and may I say they're admitting without any humility that they never knew Him, ever. That they had been through the motions, they had followed the process, and that what they had had was all there is. And the entire premise, their entire premise, is wrong and always was. We flip over a couple of pages to chapter 32 in Genesis. Chapter 32 in Genesis. This is the next time Jacob runs into God. Chapter 32, we'll start at verse 22. The same night, Jacob got up took his two wives, his two maids, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them, sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Amen and amen. Jacob knows this God. And so when he encounters him again in the person we are to understand as an angel, he doesn't run away. When he is accosted, he doesn't run away. Why? Because he knows he can't. (laughs) He knows he can't. There's no place else to go. And he cannot turn away. He can't turn his back. But he must wrestle with God. He wrestles with Him and has to pursue the blessing, whatever it takes. But he pursues the blessing only through great struggles and exhaustion and sleepless nights, and ultimately, suffering. He persists because he knows this God now, and he cannot do otherwise. But it comes with a price. He clings. He clings to this God. He will not let go. He clings and hangs on and He receives the blessing but at the price of the pain. The blessing only comes ultimately sooner or later with pain. The blessing is inseparable from the wound he receives and it's always so. Bart Ehrman who renounces his faith because he doesn't understand suffering has only admitted that he does not understand what life is about. The power of suffering, the power of pain, the power of surrender, the power of sacrifice, he doesn't get it. And he can't get it until you know him. Because God doesn't doesn't value pain like we do. Bart and others think that the whole purpose of life is to have a comfortable existence without pain. The only people I know of that think about life like that are about four years old. (laughs) It's not supposed to hurt. Well, I'm a carpenter. I hurt all the time. Power saws, sanders, I'm taking off skin, I'm jamming splinters under my nails. Yes, it hurts. If I'm going to produce these beautiful works that I make, it's going to cost something. It always does. And so, with God, the blessing always comes with pain. And those of you who have gone through great pain, whether it was physical pain, or emotional pain, it was heartbreak, struggling with cancer, whatever it was, when you look back, if you know the Lord, you will know that there was and is a blessing in it. I'm not saying it's fun. I'm not saying you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed it, we need to have a talk. (laughs) We don't enjoy it, but we know there is blessing in it. And that is one of those truths we only learn through experience that comes with time. It's a truth that, including for me as a 15-year-old, although I I maybe had a bit more of an inkling of it after losing my father than many of my friends had, but the young, the immature, can't understand that. Most 20-year-olds can't understand that, and I'm not holding it against them. That just comes with life and with time. Those who have never known the living God can never grasp it. The Gospels are consistent. When Jesus dies, he embraces that suffering for it to become a blessing to us. And then... On the third day, he rises from the dead and he appears to his disciples. And do you know what he says? Does he give them long teachings? Guys, let me tell you, I was just up in heaven and let me tell you all about it. Oh, you come up and then there's this guy there. He's got a little kiosk and he's got a clipboard. And oh, Excuse me, Jesus, what's a clipboard? Oh, yeah, you guys don't know what that is yet hasn't been invented that'll be invented in a couple thousand years but you know and then you'll and then you go through and he doesn't describe the pearly gates or the clouds of heaven or what the glory of God is he doesn't describe any of that he doesn't describe or explain much of anything oh a little bit well guys this said so I had to suffer in the scripture you know just just reread isaiah and a couple of other you'll see it in there it's all the way through there but he doesn't really teach because the message is standing right in front of them and it has two legs and two hands with wounds in them he is the message the revelation of Jesus Christ standing before them is the message. And it's that message of encountering Jesus, the revelation of God through Jesus in his own person. That's what changes lives. That's what makes the difference. At 15, I didn't understand all of that. I resisted it. Simply because I was an idiot. And I didn't get it. But in October, and I guess that's why God in his irony wanted me to talk about that this month because... This is the, oh my goodness, uh, I either this week or last week I lose track, but this would be the 50th anniversary of that evening. Our youth leaders took the whole youth group up to Jacksonville to hear a singing, Christian singing group called the Continental Singers. Some of you who go way back as well may remember hearing about them or having heard them even. College students who, who got together and they would travel around and sing Christian songs and give testimonies. And I was, we were listening to the Continental Singers, and it was great. But, of course, at 15, I really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the message. I, At 15, I was a whole lot more interested in, in the cute little brunette that was second from left. I even remember that. Second from left and thought she was just cat's meow or something. And I, everything else just sort of went right by me and then they came to the end they were going to have an invitation every head bowed every eye closed if you'd like to receive Christ please raise your hand well I had not bowed my head or closed my eyes yet and they say oh hands are going up all over and I'm looking around I'm not seeing any yet but okay maybe they're behind me I don't know but then I thought, well, I really ought to at least. He can, you know, the, the speaker uh, up the speaker at the pulpit. He can see me that my eyes are wide open. So I guess I better close them, right? So I close, dutifully close my eyes, and I'm sitting there now. At fifty, I'm sitting right on the center aisle. My legs are stretched out into the the uh, aisle. Being a long, tall, gangly teenager, you know how that is. They don't fit. They don't fit in the between the pews. So I have my, my legs sticking out into the aisle. Our eyes are closed, and I'm waiting. And then I, I realize someone is looking at me. Have you ever had someone look at you? you they were staring at you, and you could feel it, even though you, you didn't know, like, like your mama, maybe? <laughs> you can feel those eyes staring at the back of your head, Especially if you're misbehaving or something. So I was sitting there with my eyes shut, and somebody was looking at me. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, it must be the usher. Because my feet are out, sticking out into the aisle, and they're getting ready to offer the invitation for these hordes of. of, of new converts to, to come forward and they're afraid I'll trip them on the way, right? So I pull in my feet and kind of wrestle myself into my seat and look up and open my eyes. And there's nobody there. But there is somebody there. A little taller than a human With this aura of power. This presence. This terrible awesomeness. I don't have to see it to know it's there. And He's looking right at me. Practically through me. And I knew. This is Jesus. He really is risen and alive. And I belong to him now. And as long as I live, I'll never be able to turn away from that gaze. I hope you've had your experience. It's going to be different for each person, but that experience of the reality and the power and the presence of God in your life that makes everything suddenly make sense where it all fits. If you've been going through the motions, you know, what you do when you're in a church or joining a church or whatever, and this goes especially for our teenagers because I know I've, I was there, but you haven't experienced that power of God, that awesome presence of God, if you haven't met the resurrected one, As we're singing at the end, I want to invite you to come forward, meet with our our prayer uh, ministers up front, and take some time to pray. And we'll pray that you'll actually meet him and find the truth beneath it all. That there really is more than what you've known. And that the little bit we've known is not, is never all there is. Let's pray. Lord, at a time when so many believers have been confused or puzzled, or many who have gone through the motions of being leaders and spokesmen in the church have are finally facing up to the fact they don't know what it's about and have been unsettling many and are living as enemies of Christ. We pray for a move of your Holy Spirit for a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, not as dry theory, but as encounter, as meeting the risen Lord and knowing it's true. Revitalize your church, Revitalize the new generation coming up who've heard it and heard it and they've sung the praise songs, but they don't yet know that they belong to you and you alone. We pray for them. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.